testimony of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, we are almost to the end of our series. That's kind of sad. But uh, liberty on the line. That's where we end tonight. It's the title for our thought tonight. But today, this morning, we're going to talk about those who are in search of the church. Okay. Now you're here today. And I'm glad you're here today. We're going to begin with a prayer, and then we're going to get going. You're going to need to buckle up, and I hope you're still hungry for some spiritual food, because we are not finishing as early as we did last week, just a heads up. You know, last week we got started a little bit earlier, and that's all right. Every church service is different. It's not cookie cutter. So, uh, we will not be done by 12.15. We'll see how long this takes, but... I hope you have patience of the saints and want to endure to the end because uh, evangelism is more like a marathon than a sprint, right? We're endurance runners because we want to endure to the end. Uh, he who endures to the end shall be saved. So let's pray and let's get going. Father God, I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here today. Lord, your word is powerful. Your word is truth and it is life changing. It sets the captive free. And so, Lord, we're asking that that life-changing truth would set us free today, that it would inspire us to be more like our Savior. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather here on your Sabbath day. Please pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. And I ask, Lord, that you would hide me behind the cross, that my words may not be mine, but a reflection of yours. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 10. We talked a little bit about it during Sabbath school. It's always a blessing when you see how God begins to bring things into harmony. <clears throat> John chapter 10. Let's pick up there in our Bibles this morning. We're going to start in verse 1. John chapter 10 and verse 1. Verily I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. There's an interesting warning given at the beginning of this chapter. Verily, verily, truly, I say to you, Whoever does not enter in by the door, what are they? A thief and a robber. Okay? So, the very fact that this verse is there would suggest that at the end of time, there's going to be some thieves and robbers sneaking in, trying to deceive and steal away the sheep of God's pasture. Now, it's interesting that this thief, this robber, doesn't enter in by the door. Well... There's a reason the thief and the robber can't enter in by the door. It's partly because of his nature. He's a deceiver. And all those who follow him, who work in his angelic throng of darkness, are also deceivers. But it's interesting, right? Christ said, I am the way. And we're going to find that he is the door. And he's also the one that stands at the door of our hearts. And knocks. The devil seeks to deceive, and he has a lot of ways to deceive us. But the difference here is God has sheep who know his voice. And that's how you know a true sheep of Christ. A true disciple is in tune with the very voice of God. Verse 5 says, A stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable Jesus spoke unto them, but they understood not the things that, he, that were spoken unto them. Then Jesus said unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. 
All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way. There is no other name. I am the way. If you enter in by me, you shall be saved. And you shall go out and find pasture. The thief, now we're going to define the thief one last time. The thief cometh not but to steal, kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and life more abundantly. Here we see the great contrast. There are two choices in this life. The thief, he has one mission, to steal, kill, and destroy. But the mission of Christ is to give each one of us life and life more abundantly. The Bible says in John chapter 10 and verse 27 and 28, you can look there for yourself, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Right? Paul would say, for I am persuaded that neither death nor any principality nor anything can separate us from the love of God. When we are hid in Christ, we are never the more safe, right? The safest place to be is hid in the cleft of the rock in the presence of the Almighty. Now this leads me to a question this morning because really, in essence, Christianity is about following the Lamb. Christianity is about knowing the voice of Jesus and following wherever He leads. That's what it means to be a Christian. So this leads me to ask another question this morning. Why does church matter? Why does church matter? matter. Well, we're going to define that very clearly this morning. But, you know, today there's this popular notion, especially among Oklahomans, because Oklahomans can be very proud. Oklahomans are YouTube educated. Oklahomans love to debate you on the scripture and all this stuff. And you'll run into Oklahomans. I've run into this a lot. And they're like, well, I am the church. I don't need no denomination. I don't need no church. I don't need no religion. I am the church. Oh, my friends. That's not possible. You are not the church. It just is not possible. Why? Well, we're going to find out as we continue. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's just notice this. This is the counsel that is given in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. The Bible says, let us consider one another, okay, in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. (coughs) So here the Bible says, let us consider one another. Church is not an experience that you can truly have by yourself. It has to be with a body of believers. And we cannot forsake the assembling of ourselves together, especially if you notice the Bible is very deliberate in capitalizing the word day, the day. What day are we talking about? Christ's second coming. We're going to see this actually again today, that when the Bible uses the phrase, the day, we are talking about the day that we all look to. It's called the blessed hope, when sin shall be no more, because Jesus will have returned to take us home forever and ever. But it gets better. It gets better. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14, makes it very clear that you are not the church The church does not exist in one member because the body of Christ is composed of many members all working together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 through 14 says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit were we all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, and all have been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. The body of Christ is not composed of independent factions, but rather one body full of many members, all working to glorify Christ. 
Now, what other motivation do we have to be a part of the church of Christ? What other evidence do we have to suggest that the church is Christ? That the church is not one person, that it is not possible for you and I to be the church, but rather the church is a movement of which we are invited to join. Well, join me in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Ephesians chapter 5 Verse 25 through 27. Here, Jesus is using the illustration of marriage, something that he created. And he says this, Husbands, pay attention, husbands, this morning. Love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, a pure and undefiled church. This is God's desire. But that she should be holy and without blemish. Okay, so here we see that God is referring to the church as a woman, the bride of Christ. And while Christ is obviously, or Paul is using the illustration of marriage here, where Husbands are to love their wives, and wives are to honor their husbands. We see all of that in Ephesians chapter 5. Here, the Bible is very clear that Christ died for his church. He gave his life, and this is the love that we are to have, a self-sacrificing love that we would even lay down our lives just as Christ did. Greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for a friend. Jesus is the one who founded the church. He loved the church and gave himself for her. Don't ever let somebody tell you, you don't need church. I am the church. That's a lie. Jesus is the church, the head, and the founder of the church. And he invites all people to be a part of his true church. His spotless church, without wrinkle or blemish, holy. And this is what we're talking about today. Are we in search of the church? I pray that you're not because you're here today. But we're going to talk about the evidence in Scripture that suggests that God has a true church, that He's always had a remnant, that He's always had a people that would stand faithful to Him. And His church is not a church that is defiled. It's not a church that is corrupted. But it's a church that stands alone upon the truth of God's Word. It's a church that Jesus will be able to present faultless before His throne. We notice this, that the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the days of the early church, we look at this, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. The church grew under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the greatest things that we need today. Jesus is the rock, my friends, upon which the church of God is built. And when the church of God is established upon Christ, the rock, our Savior, we will experience the Acts 2.47 experience where the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The church was not experiencing growth once a year when they had an evangelistic series or uh, when they had a Messiah's Mansion tour. No, they were experiencing church growth daily. <laughs> That's some radical different times. But how do we know what God's church is supposed to be like? How do we know? Well, there's a lot of confusion out there. I was doing some research, and you'll notice this interesting statistic on the screen from the Center for the Study of Global Christianity. We report 45,000 Christian denominations in the world in 2019. 45,000 churches, all claiming to follow the Bible. That means that there's 45,000 different versions of what it means to be a Christian out there. 45,000 different interpretations of God's Word, at least. So how do we know what sets God's true church apart from the other 44,999? How do we know? 
Well, we've already begun to see today that God likens his church unto a pure woman, an undefiled woman. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2 says, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. Now, on the contrast, the Bible says that there's another church out there. And this church is described as the harlot. Now, a harlot is not someone that you want to be. But God died for harlots, too. If you pick up your Bibles in Revelation chapter 17, let's go there today. Revelation chapter 17, we're going to see the contrast here. We notice that there's a woman that represents God's pure bride, the pure church, the undefiled church, the one that is without spot, without wrinkle, as it says in the book of Ephesians. Now we're going to come to Revelation chapter 17, and we're going to see a very different kind of church that delights in destroying the saints of the Most High. Revelation 17 We read here, picking up in verse 3, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sat upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten hordes. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and decked with gold. Notice these are all sanctuary colors, but it's missing two important colors, that meaning white and blue, meaning it is not pure and it defies the laws of God. Because it's missing the color blue. Verse 5, And upon her forehead was written the name, Mystery, Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And I saw her and wondered with great admiration. This Woman in Revelation 17 is the daughter or the mother of the harlots. And all her daughters follow her corrupt doctrine. If you notice back in verse 4, in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. When we keep reading, we understand that multitudes, peoples, and nations have wandered after this false church. So again, I come back to the question, how do we distinguish between the 44,999 denominations that are not adhering to the word of God in purity and truth and find out what God's truth is? We notice that there's a corrupt woman and the Bible says there's also a pure woman who's arrayed in the righteousness of Christ. Well, The movement began years ago, and it has to be understood that this movement was deeply rooted in the Protestant Reformation. Now, I passed out a little timeline for you guys today, but we're going to come back to Daniel chapter 8.14, as I promised we would. Daniel chapter 8.14, we talked about this earlier in our series. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 If you have your Bibles, join me there. Now Daniel 8 and verse 14 says, And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now we noticed that Daniel is very sickened by this. He, He is faint for many days, and he begins to pray to the Lord God Almighty, and he asks him to give him understanding. He confesses the sins of his people. He identifies himself with the people. And God actually answers him in Daniel chapter 9. And he says, this is to help you understand the vision. And he says, there will be 70 weeks cut off and determined for your people, 490 years, as we already talked about. And as we understood, the final decree, the third decree, to actually restore and rebuild all of Jerusalem took place in 457 B.C. 457 B.C. We also understood that not only did... Numbers 14, 34, and Ezekiel 4, verses 4 through 6 give us an understanding of the Bible's day-to-year principle for Bible prophecy. But we also looked at the fact that when Daniel 8, 8, 14 says the sanctuary shall be cleansed, the Jewish mindset would have automatically thought about what? Okay, the sanctuary, yes. But when was the sanctuary cleansed? The Day of Atonement, right. Okay, the Day of Atonement took place how many times a year? Once. Daniel understood that this was talking about 2,300 years. 
And with the start date of 457 B.C., when we follow this to its logical conclusion, it brings us all the way down to 1844. Now, they were a little off initially because they had said, you know what, it's 1843, but the Bible already foresaw that. In fact, if you want to go more in depth, we can talk about the 1335, the 1290, the 1260. I'd love to do a full study on this, but we don't have time this morning. But the Bible was spot on. It's amazing to see when you see all these prophecies come together. But Habakkuk chapter 2 was the verse that helped God's people come to an understanding of truth. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. The Lord answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Okay, so you have to understand that verse 2 was what inspired them to start making you know, the big charts and different things and replicas of the beasts of Revelation that they started sharing at these tent meetings and so on. Kind of like our slides today. Um, kind of like the little image that Travis had for those of you who got the drawings last night, right? Different replicas so that people could see and visualize the truth of the Bible. So because of this verse, they began making these charts, they began publishing this, and it has a powerful effect but then they come back to this verse, and they come to verse 3, and it says, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak, it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. Though it tarries, it shall surely come. Now join me in Daniel chapter 12. I'll explain this real quick, the connection. Daniel chapter 12. And we come down to the end of the chapter. And we come to verse 12. And the Bible says this. Remember, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Though it tarries, it will happen, right? Okay. Then we notice Daniel chapter 12 and verse 12. It says, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand, three hundred, five, and thirty days. The thirteen thirty-five. 1335 began in 538, and it goes perfectly up to the year 1843, one year before. They started to realize this, though it tarries, it will happen. They go back, they discover, wait a second, there's no zero year. We've been off a year. It's 1844. Now, they were mistaken. They're thinking that the sanctuary being cleansed was the earth being cleansed and Jesus coming again. They had missed the fact... But the Bible talked about a heavenly sanctuary in Hebrews chapter one and verse Hebrews chapter eight verses one and two. Hebrews chapter eight verse one and two is just one of the verses that we could look at to understand that there is a heavenly sanctuary. It says this. Now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Okay. So they begin to recognize after 1844, after the great disappointment, the Millerite movement, those who remain faithful, who didn't abandon the truth, they go back to the Word of God, they search it with greater intensity, and they come to the realization that, wait a second, Jesus has moved into the most holy place, we've entered into earth's final judgment hour, the day of atonement or the anti-typical day of atonement has begun. The sanctuary in heaven is being cleanse. Now, it's interesting to note that right about this time, what does the devil like to do? He likes to create confusion. So, at the same time that the Seventh-day Adventist movement is beginning to emerge, you have a bunch of fractured movements. The Jehovah's Witness church arises. The Mormons all of a sudden arise. Um, I feel like there's a couple others, but then you have like some of these other church evolution, the theory of evolution is popularized first in 1844 actually by Darwin. It doesn't get officially published until later, but his first manuscript of Origins of Species is actually 1844. So you have all these confusing things that begin to arise right around the time that God is doing something great. Okay, now we've got to keep going. Okay, so the Adventist church was a movement from the beginning. It doesn't officially form as a denomination legally until 1863, but 1844, we begin to realize that Christ has moved into the most holy place. Now let's come back to Revelation chapter 12. 
Revelation chapter 12. And we read here in Revelation chapter 12. And verse 17, our scripture reading for today. Thank you, Anna, for stepping up and reading that. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and of the testimony of Christ. Okay? So we already know that the dragon is the devil. We've seen this in Revelation chapter 12 already. And the dragon is described to us as very wroth and angry with the remnant of God's people who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. Two identifying characteristics. The commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now as we keep going, the remnant is not an exclusive movement. This is not, you know, a message that says you have to be born a seven-day Adventist to be saved. Right? No, every people, this is why we have the everlasting gospel, from all nations, tribe, kindred, tongue, and people are invited to join God's remnant church. That's the invitation that we are to give. But to help you understand this, we have to recognize that throughout the Bible and throughout Christian history, God has always had a remnant. Always. He has always had a remnant of faithful people, even when it looked like there were none. Take, for example, Elijah, right? Elijah lives during a very dark time in the children of Israel's history. Elijah has to go before the king and say, you know what? There's going to be no rain or water in this land for three and a half years. And according to the word of the Lord, there was no rain no water for three and a half years. It comes to the end, and he comes back around to King Ahab, and Ahab's like, you're the one who's troubled Israel, and Elijah's like, no, really, you're the one who's troubled Israel. And so there comes to this great showdown. They come to Mount Carmel, and it's a very humorous story. It's one of the humorous stories in the Bible, because the prophets of Baal, they've been dancing around all day, cutting themselves, calling upon God, saying, uh, calling upon their God, saying, rain down fire to burn the sacrifice, right? <laughs> And nothing happens. And Elijah's like, if you remember, he's like, oh, is your God deaf? You know, does he not hear you, right? He's just totally mocking them. It's, it's kind of a funny story. But Elijah gets up, and he's like, ups the ante. He's like, okay, not only am I going to pray to my God, who is going to rain down fire from heaven, but let's drench this thing three times in water. And we need to make a moat around it to make sure that we retain the water. And Elijah gets down. He prays, and God answers. Fire falls from heaven, not only consuming the sacrifice, but the entire altar. And it laps up all the water, gone. And you would think at that moment, like all the prophets of Baal get slaughtered that day, all 400 of them. You would think at that moment, there's no way you could ever be discouraged, depressed, or defeated. I mean, not only that, but rain falls that day. And the rain falls with such great power that Elijah finds himself running in front of the chariot of the king who wanted his head. Like, talk about superhuman strength, outrunning horses, guiding horses. And then Elijah hears, you know what? Um, king Jezebel, she's going to kill you. And he books it the other way, out of there. It's like, oh man. King Jezebel. He's afraid. And he runs and he runs until he's ready to die. And he's having a self-pity party for himself. I'm the only one. It all falls on me. I'm the only one who's been faithful. And finally God meets him and he gives him some food. And, and in the quiet, the still small voice, God reminds him, actually, I have 7,000 others who have not bowed the knee. God has always had a remnant. Always. And just to name some more stories. We talked about Daniel a little bit this week and his three friends, right? Even though they've been stripped away, captive in a foreign land, they stood faithful. When King Nebuchadnezzar is ready to burn them up, they stand faithful and God shows up. 
in such a mighty way that the pagan king recognizes the very Son of God walking in the midst of the fire. Jeremiah, a contemporary, was a part of the faithful, was a part of the remnant, right? He's so faithful to God that he's ignored for 40 years. I mean, I've, I don't know of anyone else who has had a more depressing ministry. He tells them, Babylon is coming, Babylon is coming. If you would just submit to them and surrender, it's going to save a lot of lives and it's going to save our land. What do they do? They try to fight. They get wiped out. Then finally, after all of that, they come back to him and they're like, oh, tell us when Babylon's coming again. And he's like, Babylon's not coming again. In fact, don't go down to Egypt as you're planning to do. What do they do? They go down to Egypt. What happens? Babylon comes and destroys Egypt. Ignored. Thrown in mud pits. But the man stood faithful. God has always had a remnant. God has always had a people. Early church. Finally, God has made a separation between the Jewish nation and his church, his people. The gospel goes forth to the Gentiles. And all of the apostles, save for John, are killed. John's the only one that gets to live to the end of his life. And the last part of his life was spent in prison. It wasn't like he was living it up on some beach. But these men remained faithful. We come to the Dark Ages. You have the Celtic Church, which maintained the purity of the faith. Now, don't let them deceive you. St. Patrick is not a saint of the Catholic Church. He's one of God's saints. You've got to study his story. He was actually a faithful Sabbath keeper. But it wasn't just him and the Celtic Church. You had the Waldensians who maintained the purity of faith. God has always had a remnant, those who have been faithful to him and to his word. The reformers did a work of bringing back truth. But everything has to be restored, and this is the position of the Adventist church, is to restore all things. The devil always has been and always will be wroth with God's true church. He will always be angry with the remnant who keep the commandments of God. And who have the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 14 verse 12 tells us it's the end of the message for God's 144,000 who will stand sealed with the character of their father and their forehead. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We've learned through this series that we will be judged by the perfect law of liberty. That is God's moral law which was given not to the Jews but for all of mankind. It was not an exclusive law, but it is applicable and valid for all of us still today. In fact, one of my friends uh, this morning, we'll see if this goes on the screen, they sent me a text, I feel like, uh, right here. The moral law, you can't see this, is not exclusively Jewish. The ceremonial and social and political laws delivered to Moses when he was in the secret council with God on the mount were for Israel. But the moral law spoken in awful grandeur from the smoking mount in the hearing of all people and written on tables of stone was for all men who should live upon earth till the close of time. God's remnant church, it keeps his commandments. It doesn't change his commandments. It doesn't say you can be saved by his commandments. It says, no, by the power of Christ indwelling, you may have the law written upon your heart because that's always been God's desire. God has always desired to have a people that would walk by faith and not by sight, a people that would allow him to write his law upon their hearts. Now, what is the testimony of Jesus or the faith of Jesus? Well, I want us to come to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. Travis referenced this today in Sabbath school. Here we read here. Verse 9, Revelation chapter 19. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet and worshipped him. And he said to me, See that thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant of the brethren that of the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is what? Spirit the spirit of prophecy. One of the identifying marks of God's church 
His remnant church is the prophetic gift. And this gift is not just seen in the ministry of Ellen White. We understand that Joel tells us that even at the very end of time, that there will be the spirit of prophecy in God's church, that, that your young men and your young women and your old men shall dream dreams and have visions. God's counsel has been given to us to help us, to guide us, and to show us the way as His remnant people. Now we've heard sayings like this, that the final movements of earth will be rapid, and I want you to notice where this comes from, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, coming back to this great chapter, we pick up in verse 12. The Bible says, Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down with you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a what? A short time. And because he has a short time, he's desperate. He's desperate to kill and destroy and devour because he is that thief that we talked about. His time is short. And because his time is short, he's out there. He's roaring like a lion. He's angry. But God says to you and I, be sober. Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. These things that we go through in the Christian life and the Christian journey are not alone to ourselves. It's not like I'm someone special or you're someone special. But these are sufferings that exist in the brotherhood of the Christian family. Christ suffered, and so will we at the end of time, if we stand faithful. All of this has to come to pass, and all of this will come to pass. Just as God protected His church in the wilderness, as it says in Revelation chapter 12, just as He gave her wings like an eagle, right? And the woman, and to the woman, verse 14, were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time. There is the same uh, time prophecy that we talked about last night showing up from the face of the serpent. She was nourished. She was delivered during those 1260 years of darkness. God protected and preserved His truth. All of these things must come to pass. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 begins to tell us that now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, notice again, it's capitalized. We're talking about the day, the coming of Christ, just as we were told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as we see the day of approaching. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, sowing himself that he is God. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about Satan. And we're also talking about What's going to happen at the end of time with the beast power? Because it exalts itself in the place of Christ. Antichrist simply means to take the place of Christ. And so we're going to see that there is a contrast between the two women at the end of time. One tries to take the place of Christ and the other stands representing Christ because Christ is in her, the hope of glory. Now as we come to the end here, I want to come back to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to hit some key highlights. Revelation 12.6 says, The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Remember I told you seven times in the Bible the 1260 day prophecy, the 1260 year prophecy shows up. Here it's used in the literal 1260 days. Later in the chapter, it's times, times, and half a time. 
For 1260 years, God took care of his church. He gave her the wings of an eagle that she would fly away to safety. And God, at the end of time, will stand faithful to those who stand faithful to him. You know, when we go through trials and we say, you know, we want God to honor us, God will only honor us if we are faithful to him. It's it's that simple. Like, we can't claim God's blessing if we don't honor him. I can say I'm a part of God's last day church, but do I live like it? Do I live like Jesus is coming soon? Or Or am I out there living a double life, you know? The world's venues of entertainment, my friends, are just not places where we ought to be if we're serious about the coming of our Lord. God's remnant church keeps God's commitments. That means we acknowledge that God is God and there is none other. And we will not bow down to any graven image. We will not take the name of the Lord in vain. Meaning, we will not curse and we will also not profess to be a Christian while living anything but being like a Christian. We will honor the Sabbath commandment, meaning we shall do no work upon the Sabbath. Meaning that we will not be found in worldly venues of entertainment on the Sabbath. Meaning that we will not go to restaurants on the Sabbath and ask other people to serve us when God says everyone should be given the opportunity to rest on my holy day. Not forced, but at least given the opportunity. We will honor our father and mother. We won't murder. We won't commit adultery. We won't steal. We won't bear false witness. And we won't covet the things of our neighbors. This is what it means to be a part of God's remnant church. It's not something that I can profess. It's something that I've got to ask God to help me live. And God will. He delights to help his people. He always has. The dragon is wroth. He's angry. And while we don't fight, we don't fight an idiot, we do fight a defeated foe. And one day soon, his lies, his deception, his darkness will be exposed because Revelation 18 and verse 1 tells us that after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon, the great is fallen, is fallen and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. After that I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, that you receive not in her plagues. God is inviting us to give that invitation. And all those who will be a part of the loud cry will have surrendered 100% to Jesus and will have been filled with the Holy Spirit and sealed unto the day of redemption. All of these people that are involved in the loud cry are a part of God's remnant church which keeps God's commandments and the faith of Jesus. You know, this, my friends, is why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Because I don't know of any other church that actually keeps God's commandments and as the testimony of Jesus in the form of the spirit of prophecy. That's why I'm a seven-day Adventist. And if you could show me anything else from the Bible, please do. But I've got to stand alone upon the word of God, and I know that God has called this church for such a time as this. It's not to say that there aren't good people in other churches. You know, Jesus is very clear. Notice this, John chapter 10 and verse 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also must I bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. There will not be 45,000 different flocks with 45,000 different shepherds. There is one fold, one church, 
and one shepherd, Jesus Christ. And everyone is to be given the invitation to join God's true church. God's true church is in for some rough, rough times because there's some wheat and there's some tares. Even within God's true church, there are hypocrites and there are people who are falsely professing to follow their Savior. I don't know who those people are. None of us can. The Bible tells us the only thing that we can really know is by their fruits you shall know them. But at the time of harvest, earth's final harvest, we're told that these things will be separated and made plain. The invitation to you and me today is simple. To look by faith to the true shepherd and to follow him and become acquainted with his voice because his sheep know his voice and they follow the true shepherd. There is one church, there is one truth, and that truth is contained in the Word of God. And you can be sure that there aren't 45,000 different versions of that truth, but that the truth of the Word of God shall set you free if you seek it out and you ask God to help you live by it and you share it with all whom you are given opportunity to do so. Let us stand and sing our closing hymn. Number 309. I surrender all. I surrender all. I pray it's never I surrender some, but truly I surrender all. Jesus loves you. And he's calling you to join him within God's end-time remnant church. Not just any church, but his church, which keeps his commandments and has his testimony. This is my appeal. It's not really me. I pray that I'm here on behalf of Christ speaking. Is it your decision to follow Jesus according to the teachings of the Bible and become a part of his remnant church? A part of the mission to share God's final message with the world. We've been talking about it all day, right? From Sabbath school, the proclamation of the three angels' message, God's mission, all the way into our message this morning. You know, that's a God thing. You know, we couldn't have planned that. Couldn't have predicted that that would all line up for this Sabbath. So I know God's been speaking. And God invites us, right? He says in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16, you can look this up. He says, uh, that if you're baptized, you shall be saved. Not that the baptism itself saves you, but it's that profession, that acknowledgement that Christ is truly King of Kings and I'm publicly denouncing the world and accepting Jesus as my all in all. And so there's two appeals today. I know we've made appeals in the past. Travis made an appeal several months ago. But I'm going to make another appeal today for baptism. If you feel the Lord is calling you to be baptized, I invite you to come forward. And if through this series you felt the Lord calling you to make a recommitment, Maybe to be rebaptized. You know, there were people in the early church that were rebaptized because they only were baptized with the baptism of John, and then they find out the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of Christ, and they get baptized again. Perhaps you've been feeling the Lord tugging on your heart to make a recommitment. If that's the case, I just invite you to come forward. I surrender all. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we stand here today 
in awe of the great love which you have shown us. That you would choose us weak and erring mortals for such a time as this to proclaim your love in all the world. Lord, you're calling each and every one of us here today. The invitation is, has gone forth for us to join you and the mission of your remnant church at the end of time. The invitation has gone forth today to leave this world behind, the pleasures of this world, and to be fishers of men and women. The invitation has gone forward for us to join forces with you, with all our heart, mind, and strength, to go forward proclaiming the everlasting gospel in all the world to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And so, Lord, truly you are inviting us to be washed and to be cleansed to the power of your blood. Lord, we don't want to be amongst those who surrendered some, but we want to be amongst the faithful who surrendered all. If you start a desire as all heads are bound to simply surrender all, just raise your hands. And if the Lord's calling you to make a deeper commitment through baptism, as all heads are bowed, I make one last appeal that you would come forward. Our time is short. The devil knows it. And his mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. But the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, protects his sheep who know his name, who know his voice, and follow him at his word. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.